2: Well, the Amazon effect is somewhat toxic today for big healthcare and pharmaceutical companies. Joining us now is the dream team, Max Neeson, biotech, pharma, and healthcare columnist, and Shira Ovide, technology columnist, both of them with Bloomberg Opinion, both of them joining us here in our 1130 studios. So, Max, let's start with you. Uh, PillPack, what is it and what does it say about Amazon's approach to getting into the healthcare business?
4: Yeah, absolutely. So it's a a mail-order focused pharmacy. Um, What they do is basically divide up prescriptions into day by-day doses um, using a lot of technology and software to kind of make that process as efficient as possible and uh, the real benefit for Amazon here is that they're they're licensed across the country um, it gets a lot of the regulatory and and logistical work of getting into the pharmacy business uh, just out of the way right away so they can kind of immediately um, start scaling that that things up um, you know reaching out to their enormous network of customers you know prime and, and otherwise and uh, start trying to sign them up for uh, for A new way of getting their medicines? Sure, every day. Your thoughts.
5: I mean, look, this is what everyone in the healthcare industry has been worried about or anticipating for more than a year that Amazon has shown interest in becoming kind of a, a prescription drug retailer. And more recently, it looked like they weren't going to do that right away. That they had some pharmacy licenses uh, in in a handful of states. They let them lapse. Amazon had talked more recently about uh, kind of nibbling around the edges of healthcare by selling medical supplies to hospitals and things like that. So I think the the fear of Amazon becoming a you know pharmacy um, had started to ebb a little bit. And today we learned that they should have been very very afraid because in one fell swoop amazon has
2: become a force to reckon with in in the pharmacy world right by by announcing this purchase of uh of hill pack um max come on in here because uh, it's one thing to be a distributor of pharmaceuticals it's another thing to mer- move further into the healthcare industry is there any sign uh that that could be the ultimate ambition of amazon or is this just an extension of their, you know, sort of retail.
4: Um I think it definitely points directionally um that that way just because, you know, selling drugs, you know, as as easy as it sounds, it's it's actually incredibly complicated um just from a regulatory standpoint and, and um in terms of the sort of Risks. Um, you know, if you get things wrong, it it, it can go very badly indeed. So it's uh, just a move, a sign that they're move, willing to move into a, a a more complex environment with with you know dealing with with payers, insurance companies, PBMs, as opposed to like like Shere said, nibbling around the edges. This is kind of the heart of healthcare, and and I think a sign that uh, they're potentially willing to take on harder challenges in their kind of ongoing effort to to kind of be everywhere.
2: Yeah. Well, Max, I'm glad you said harder challenges, and Shira, this is where I want you to come in. Uh, we've talked extensively about how some of the businesses that they've been trying to get into are very different from brick and mortar retailers, such as uh, the Whole Foods purchase, and how the grocery uh, sort of conundrum has been a difficult one for Amazon to crack with respect to delivery. I'm just wondering, you know, w- what the success rate is with something like this, and whether, you know, perhaps uh, people are extrapolating a little too far that Amazon will just hit another home run.
5: Yeah. And I think that's a very, a very good point that there is now this belief that Amazon maybe can do anything and might do anything, which which could be true. Look, I wouldn't be surprised in five years if Amazon is, you know, a giant seller of groceries in a way that they really aren't today uh, or in financial services or other areas of um, of commerce. But, it is worth pointing out that Amazon is not successful at everything it does. It actually owned part of drugstore.com beginning in the late 1990s. That was a way that they wanted to kind of explore getting into uh, prescription drug sales didn't really work out the way they intended. Obviously, those were different times, both for uh, drug sales and for Amazon. It was a much younger company. Amazon has failed at online travel. It had a service that it shut down. It has, um, you know, it it is not successful at everything it does. So um, take heart, Walgreens and CVS investors.
3: Alexa, Shira Ovide is skeptical. Alexa... (laughs) Max Neeson, are you in the same camp? Do you believe that they're going to have a big challenge to try to roll this out under the Amazon umbrella? I mean, because as I just kind of kidding, but... Alexa, refill my prescription.
2: Oh my God, you are absolutely terrorizing anyone who's listening to this on a smart device. I mean, (laughs) everybody's Alexa. Well, I mean, if you're listening, well,
3: but that's the point. If Alexa's in the background, it's listening. And it is in many, you know, we, you know, I'm old, right? I mean, so that the idea of of having something that is interactive like that in your house can be kind of a little off putting. But, you know, any person under the age of whatever, they have no problem with this kind of technology.
4: Yeah, so so I think, um, you know, actually the the volume of drug prescriptions ordered through the mail has actually gone down. Right. Um, which as much as anything is a function of that they're just more expensive drugs, like the, the actual money is, has gone up. But, um, you know, if there, there's anyone that can make people more comfortable with or make this process Easier, cheaper, better. Um, you think it might be Amazon, and especially that they're going in with PillPack. That's already kind of doing something interesting with the model in in
3: trying to make it consumer friendly and and easier. They do it with the dosage. I mean, this is something that I always found was revolutionary with PillPack because you know you go to the pharmacy or you get something in the mail and it sends you a bottle with the childproof cap and so on, and then you kind of take your pill, whatever it is. But with PillPack. All the pills that you are prescribed for that particular day come in its own pack. It's sealed. It tells you what time to take it, what day to take it. There's no, you know. You, it just it's a it's almost an it's an intellectual uh, advance, I would say.
4: Yeah. And, and it's one that's pretty clearly aimed at, you know, America's aging population. Um, you do this instead of having, you know, a, a nurse or, or a family member come over and sort out your your pills, which is, um, you know, if any, anyone who's ever done that knows yes. that it's a, an incredibly going. long and difficult process. So, um, you know, it, it's a it's a consumer move as well and one that uh, Amazon is uniquely poised to, to take advantage of.
2: Just real quick here, Shira, who are the hires that we should be looking out for from Amazon to get a sense of how serious and how broad their push is? I mean, are they going to try to beef up it all from the inside? Well, look, they they have already in
5: the last year or so hired people who have experience in pharmaceutical and healthcare. So it's clear that it has been clear that this is an area that they're interested in. Um, I would be curious to see whether they put PillPack in this. Amazon puts PillPack under the leadership of people who are doing Prime. Do they put it into under the Whole Foods bucket? Where exactly do they slot in um, the leadership of PillPack?
3: Alexa, thanks you. We thank you very much. Shira Oviday, our technology columnist uh, for Bloomberg Opinion. Max Neeson, our healthcare columnist for uh, Bloomberg Opinion on this day in which uh, we know that Amazon is purchasing PillPack and uh, giving a lot of competition to uh, CVS and Walgreens Boots Alliance.
2: It's been a terrible stretch for financial stocks in the U.S. and frankly, globally, uh, with European bank shares taking a hit. And a big question has been, why? Here to answer that is Chris Whalen, chairman of Whalen Global Advisors. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. So what's your take on the recent route in financial stocks, given the fact that nothing really that bad has happened in the economy?
6: Well, the financials had a tremendous year in 2017, largely in anticipation of tax cuts and deregulation, all the rest of it. You guys reported on it extensively. And so now, at a fairly full valuation, 1.6, 1.7 times book value, say, for J.P. Morgan, um, the markets are looking at a flattening yield curve. They're looking at the prospect for an economic slowdown. Um, They're also taking notice of the fact that loan growth for banks is is dropping off dramatically. Uh, And you put all that together, and it it really, I think, uh, argues for taking money off the table. And that's kind of how I view this. Financials are big, so that when people want to take a short position in the market, they're one of the first sectors you go to. So I think all of that is really what, what explains the weakness in the last couple of months.
3: Chris Whalen, are banks going to be able to increase their dividends to shareholders?
6: Oh, they have, Pim. I mean, the portion of bank income that's going to shareholders is, is up. They're going to actually pay out more than they make this year, um, which is an indication of how overcapitalized the industry is. And I think there's a, there's a lack of demand for loans. This is something people don't focus on. You know, we talk about the recovery and the strong economy. But really, when you look at loan growth, it's pretty pedestrian. And the reason is, is that there's a combination of regulatory factors. They don't want banks to take risk, uh, higher capital levels. And also, there's just a lack of demand. Even things like autos have slowed down after a very torrid growth uh, period after the crisis. You know, auto loans doubled as an asset class. Think about that, Lisa. So, yeah, I no, mean, it's unbelievable.
2: But, but Chris, I guess that, that one question is, uh, can we look at the weakness in bank stocks as sort of a, a canary in that sense? I mean, if people really are expressing that they think that the economy is gonna slow, we're not seeing yes. that elsewhere. And frankly, when we talk to people, uh, they say that everything looks pretty good. Fundamentals look solid in the US.
6: Well, fundamentals look solid, but I will tell you that credit is very, very stretched right now in terms of quality. Uh, both leveraged loans, high-yield debt, all of these sectors have really pushed the limit in terms of uh, eroding investor protections, pricing. Uh, Spreads are still very tight, even though the Fed has been raising rates now for months. You haven't seen any reaction in the high-yield market. They've been rallying. In fact, the 10-year is rallying now, too. So you have a lot of contradictory indicators, and I think investors look at that flattening yield curve and they worry about banks because obviously banks make money on leverage. They borrow, uh, you know, they, they raise money short and they lend it long. And if the curve is flattening and there's no reaction in credit spreads, that's a very confusing set of indicators. Lisa, it really is.
3: Chris, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, what happens and what happens to the preferred shareholders that have been holding on for
6: so long? Well, they just uh, the uh, Trump administration just put out some thoughts on on privatizing Fannie and Freddie, which I think is, is uh, you know, a fanciful proposal uh, without the support of the federal government. Fannie and Freddie could not function. You know, they can't just turn them into big non-banks like uh, Redwood Trust, right, or Penny Mac. That would not work. Um, the preferred shareholders have been hanging on. You know, in a moral sense, they are owed something. But I will tell you that I think the litigants, the hedge funds, and everybody who went uh, in the court to fight over this had uh, a, a very bad strategy. They should have argued that they were the creditors instead of shareholders, and that they were defrauded and they are owed their money back with 6% interest per year. Uh, that didn't happen. I don't think politically there's any catalyst to really push a proposal forward right now. There's no interest in it. Maybe after the uh, after the uh, the midterm elections, we can have a discussion about this, but there's no urgency. You know, a lot of the proponents of, of reform, of paying the preferred shareholders, say the current situation is not sustainable. Well, that's clearly not true. Um, Fannie and Freddie are functioning fine. Um, I would tell you that I think the next big Inflection point with the GSEs is going to be when Mel Watt leaves the regulator next year and the Republicans put someone in place. I think that they are going to make changes to Fannie and Freddie administratively. They're going to downsize them. They're going to probably uh, reduce the the, uh, maximum loan amount that they're allowed to guarantee. Uh, They'll probably end uh, second homes. You won't be able to get a Fannie and Freddie loan for a vacation home, for example. So the republicans have an agenda to really use administrative tools to downsize both of these entities but i don't know that they'll actually pass legislation to take them out of conservatorship because that's what you need you got to get congress in the game otherwise nothing happens
3: thanks very much chris whalen chairman of whalen global advisors on banks and fannie mae and freddie mac and the potential for some kind of reform of those uh, government sponsored entities.
0: Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, giving you even more specialized support than ever before. Like access to the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders ready to tackle anything from the most complex trading questions to a simple strategy gut check. Need assistance? No problem. Get 24-7 professional answers and live help and access support by phone, email, and in-platform chat. That's how Schwab is here for you, to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading.
3: Leland, thanks very much for coming into our studio. Dispel some of the current uh,
1: opinions and analysis of the Chinese economy for us. Well, most China watchers view the economy not through data because they don't trust official data, but through anecdotes. And right now, there's a few anecdotes that say China's in real trouble. That that the tides have turned, and uh, and you're you're starting to see uh, you know the beginnings of a troubled scenario, or collapse, or hard landing, and uh, you know we don't buy it. We don't buy it because we look at our own data which just came out, and we see a much more solid picture than what's being reflected in official data. And I acknowledge that the May official data look pretty bad. Uh, but but it's lagging compared to what the, what we're looking at. Well, hold, and it's the prettier picture right now.
2: Hold on one second. Let's just set the stage a little bit because mm-hmm. we're seeing a, a huge decline in the UN and the Chinese currency versus the dollar uh, at the lowest levels in more than a year. We're mm-hmm. seeing a massive sell-off in the stock market, which mm-hmm. began uh, several weeks ago, but has deepened. So you see that the concern is being expressed in a number of different ways. It's not just that we're getting new data that people are mm-hmm. responding to. So uh, why do you think the narrative has shifted so quickly to all of a sudden people saying, look, this could be the beginning of a hard landing. Well,
1: first of all, the party congress honeymoon is over, and and you, you, so people realize that there's there's not as much government potentially not as much government backstop. You have the Trump trade war hovering over the economy, so people think that China could be vulnerable to that. Uh, and then you also have this fear that deleveraging is really catching on and about to light the economy on fire through starvation of credit. And what's interesting about deleveraging is there are aspects of the economy. That are deleveraging. If you look inside the financial sector, there is financial sector deleveraging. Shadow products are being uh, capped. They are they are they are really going hard. There is a shadow finance crackdown, no question, but what's happening there is they're shutting down these off-balance sheet vehicles and these shadow products, and they're shoving them into the formal banking system. So, in our data, what we actually saw is corporates borrowing more this quarter than last quarter, borrowing more this quarter than a year ago, and at the levels that were close to the run-up to the party congress and the 2016 recovery. So firms are not being starved of credit. There's plenty of it. It's just, they're just shifting uh, the the spigot from from one place to another.
2: So basically you're saying that the deleveraging so far is is something of a fiction in terms of actually reducing (laughs) the leverage from the system. That said, uh, today or overnight, uh, the Chinese government started to crack down more aggressively on short-term dollar funding of, in particular, developers, property developers, and seems to be trying to strip out some of the froth in the housing market. And I'm just wondering, I mean do you view that as a real potential deleveraging or is this just the shifting that you're saying is going on there
1: Well it's 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 a tug of war that It constantly happens when the Chinese think that the housing sector is is too frothy. And our Q2 data show property was sizzling again, despite the fact that Chinese don't want it sizzling. So there is something to that. The second thing is they're trying to crack down on short-term instruments and trying to extend the debt out farther. So there's a major problem this year with debt coming due and potential liquidity concerns over being able to roll over that debt. So they are focused on short-term debt. They're focused on short-term debt instruments. And because they're cracking down the shadow sector, they're, they're hitting wealth management products. They're hitting negotiable certificates of deposit. So there is a crunch there. The, the crunch is not fake. What's fake is that the, the economy as a whole is not being starved of credit. There's plenty of it to go around, and there will be dislocations. But this is not the beginning of you know she's massive crackdown where the economy runs dry of its fuel.
3: Leland, tell people about Made in China 2025 and how that has, in many cases— obscured uh, what is really going on in the relationship between the United States and China.
1: Well, I think it all comes back to the fact that the White House doesn't really agree on the China strategy. So there's people in the White House who think that Made in China 2025 is something that needs to be addressed and countered. Tell people what it is. Though. So first of all, it's it's a it's a Chinese it's a Chinese plan to bring as much of this uh, focus on advanced manufacturing, AI, robotics, biomedicine, Uh, it's basically advanced up the food chain type of uh, production back to China to have China uh, capture those markets, to have the Chinese government subsidize these companies and really take control of this globally. And this went under the radar for a long time in D.C., and it caught on when people realized, well, look, this is this is another form of cheating, a more dangerous form of cheating that the Chinese would potentially be doing, and this needs to be the focus of policymakers. So even though you have a bunch of people in D.C. focused on the bilateral trade deficit and others are focused on investment restrictions, Made in 2025 is this, is this is is this central rallying point because it's about Chinese companies coming in and, and, and stealing IP. It's about uh, Chinese companies buying uh, U.S. innovation and bringing it to China. It, it covers all these bases, so it's really become a toxic word in, in Washington, D.C. right now.
2: You know, Leland, you started the conversation really saying that you're not seeing this sort of material slowdown on the ground. And one of the great things about your organization, the China Beige Book International, is that you look for what the actual signs are of growth, of economic activity. What are you seeing right now that gives you such confidence to say people are wrong that China is about to experience something more significant in well, a downturn way?
1: Well, we saw, we saw an improved economy. From the, second, from, from the first quarter to the second quarter, which is not what people think has happened. They saw May official data, and you had these inno- incredible headlines, very scary. So retail sales, the worst in 15 years. you know, Investment, worst in, what was it, 20 years, something like that. And when we look at our data, we see that this is not the case. We actually saw uh, retail had gone through a, a, a difficult time earlier this year, and it's already potentially taking a turn upwards not great but but take it a turn upwards investment we, we we look at this much more broadly than the very specific category of fixed assets fixed asset investment uh, in official data and what we're seeing is stronger trends that are being recognized and then credit everyone thinks again that credits being drained to the economy you've got plenty of credit going in so it, one of the reasons the economy is stronger is because they're not cracking down on investment the way they say they are they're not cracking down on credit the way they say they are these things are still happening so the economy's stronger but it means that they're pushing off a lot of these these reforms and restructuring Uh, points till later.
2: Just uh, real quick then, what do you make of the decline in the UN?
1: Well, look, the the Chinese, uh, you know, this this looks unexpected, but if you look at what happened right up to where President Trump was inaugurated, the Chinese ran this to 6.9 to the dollar. And then steadily, ever since, have strengthened, strengthened, strengthened until very recently. They got it up to around what six two or so. And recently, you've seen some fear over the trade war. You've seen some fear over the, of the state of the Chinese economy, which again we think is mostly unfounded. And it's it's affected. They've weakened it. they they're weak, but they're not weakening it. They are stopping holding back any significant strengthening so they're just sort of letting it go a little bit more letting it go um this this will be a problem if it gets six seven six eight i think it'll freak out markets where it is right now is not an issue
2: leland miller thank you so much for being with us leland miller chief executive of the china beige book international based in new york
3: Well, the Standard & Poor's, the S&P 500 Casinos and Gaming Industry Index is down about 10% so far this year. And yet, uh, in Atlantic City, they are set to open two new casinos at the same time. That's sports betting has Begun in New Jersey. For more on the world of gaming, we turn to Brian Egger, our senior gaming and lodging analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. And you can follow Brian, as we all do, on Twitter at Breaking Call.
7: Actually, Agronomics, we changed it.
3: Agronomics, you yeah. changed it. Yeah, sorry. Oh my gosh. All right, well, Agronomics, tell us about these two new casinos. You got the Ocean Resort and the Hard Rock uh, Casino. Why are they? opening in a place that by all measures seems to already have enough capacity.
7: Well, that's a good point. So the view is that by adding more entertainment, entertainment attractions... Uh, The city will be able to increase the average visitor length of stay, attract a younger audience with entertainment and concerts. And some of that may be true, but our concern is that while these openings, which take place today actually, will grow capacity in the market by about 30%, they may only increase the market's overall revenue by 10 or 11%. So we're really concerned they take business away from other players in the city.
2: Can we just get a sense, a snapshot, taking a step back of what the volumes have been like in Atlantic City? Because my understanding is that uh, they had actually been losing popularity with respect to uh, to, to gambling.
7: So, so they've been they've been better, but bear in mind that we until yesterday had seven casinos. After four casinos closed in twenty fourteen, they all they all shut down: the Atlantic Club, Showboat, Revel, and Trump Plaza. Uh, basically went out of business. What you're seeing today is the Revel being reborn as the Ocean Resort and the Trump Taj Mahal, which also closed down, being reopened as the the Hard Rock. So these are reopenings after a period of a shakeout and downsizing. Uh, Admittedly, the market has been behaving somewhat better, but Atlantic City is not the only area expanding. We've had expansion and ongoing expansion in Pennsylvania, uh, New York, uh, elsewhere throughout the Mid-Atlantic, along with sports betting.
2: Okay. Well, so, yeah, that's where I wanted to go with this. So New Jersey also just legalized sports betting. How much betting can people do? I mean, is there like a point of peak betting capacity, peak gambling? Yeah, There's an
7: interesting chart I looked at <laughs> the other day. If you look at a map of 10 some odd, or almost a dozen, Northeast and Mid-Atlantic states, uh, 20 years ago, uh, when I was uh, a younger gaming analyst, there were about 16 casinos in those 10 states. Today, there are 51 so we've had significant expansion, not only nationally, but also in the mid-Atlantic region, uh, as we've seen this liberalization of gaming. Uh, and this is generally a mature industry. You know, Our concern is these casinos may do fine, but they take business away from other operators because as they're doing this, uh, there's much more competition in the mid-Atlantic and greater Northeast market today than there was five or 10 years ago.
3: Brian, if you happen to be an investor that believes that sports betting as it comes to New Jersey is going to be a win and you'd like to participate in that experience, what is the best way to do so?
7: Sure. Well, there are companies that we don't follow, but they're actively involved in managing the sports books. So both the Ocean Resort opening today and the Monmouth Racetrack, which started sports betting two weeks ago, uh, have sports books operated by William Hill. Uh, DraftKings, the daily fantasy sports operator, will soon have a sports book at Resorts Casino. And we've got Paddy Power Betfair, the Meadowlands. So a lot of these sports books are being operated either by the fantasy sports companies or these European companies that have operated – in markets where sports betting and online gaming has been legal for quite some time.
2: All right, so here's what I'm struggling with. You now have a more than doubling almost tripling, right, of the uh, casinos in the Northeast. Uh, In recent years, you have new casinos being built at a time when people are doing more things online and there has been a liberalization, so there are more areas that are expanding. I'm just wondering at what point is it sort of overkill and at what point is it sort of people can get out what they need to get out uh, easily with the touch of their fingers and they don't really need to go to these big buildings anymore? I think there is
7: some risk of channel shift towards online gaming, but I think the bigger issue is that Atlantic City has tried to be like Las Vegas. Bear in mind that the the number of visitors staying in Atlantic City for more than three days is only one-third of the visitor base. In Vegas, it's three-quarters. So one of the challenges that Atlantic City has, other than the competition from online gaming, is people stay shorter lengths of stay. They tend to be somewhat older, uh, and they spend less on entertainment and more on pure gambling. Some of that has to begin to change for these new resort properties to really bring a full complement of entertainment that makes it worth building these additional resorts.
3: Brian, let's go out west for just a second to Las Vegas. Sure. Who's doing the best right now?
7: So right now, we've had a bit of a slowdown in parts of the Las Vegas Strip after the tragic shooting last October. Uh, That has slowed down Uh, MGM a bit, although we put out a report this morning on the terminal indicating that we think 2019 will be a much better year for MGM and the Las Vegas Strip generally. It's been a a challenging year because of that slowdown, because of the construction of Monte Carlo being retrofitted uh, as the park MGM, uh, because of the shooting last October, which really slowed down leisure visits. I think 2019 in that context will be a better year.
2: Brian Egger, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, I, I find this so interesting, just the shift in the whole business model at, at the time when people are still building as much as they can. I well, mean, is it, it going to be build it if, you know?
3: Build it and they will come. But as I, but as Brian mentioned, you know, what, 16, when you started covering this whole thing, there were, what, 16 uh, yeah. operations? And now we've got, you know…